Hi, everyone. I'm Brene Brown, and this is Unlocking Us. In today's episode, I'm talking to my friend, Dr. Scott Sunshine, about his book, Stretch. Um, we read this book across our organization last year, and it turned our thinking upside down. So today we're going to dig into what it means to be stretchy, what it means to be chasey. Um, we're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about work, and we're going to talk about that gremlin that um, is problematic for all of us. I think especially right now, it seems worse during COVID, um, comparison. So Dr. Scott Sun and Shine. I'm going to, his new name is going to be Dr. Scott Walking on Sun and Shine. You'll see why later in the podcast. It's going to be great. So Dr. Scott Sunshine is the Henry Gardner Simmons Professor of Management at Rice University and is a New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into nearly 20 languages. In addition to Stretch, he also has co-written a book with our friend Marie Kondo um, called Joy at Work. So he's got these two books. He's written for I mean, every outlet you can imagine, New York Times, Time Magazine, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review. Um, He holds a PhD in organizational behavior from the University of Michigan. He has a master's in philosophy from the University of Cambridge and a bachelor's from University of Virginia. That's a ton of schooling. Just imagine the school loans on that sucker. His research appears in the very top academic journals, and he's contributed to several topics in management and psychology, including change, creativity, personal growth, social issues, decision-making, and influence. Um, He's just a fascinating researcher, a really good guy, and my sometimes walking partner here in the cool, crisp days of Houston summer. Let's meet Scott. Okay. Welcome to Unlocking Us, Scott Sunshine. Well, thanks again for having me on. I am so excited. You know, you know how much I love stretch. You know, this book has been a game changer for me and for all of us at our organization. It's like mandatory reading over here. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's exciting to uh, to talk to you about these ideas, especially the situation that we're in in the midst of a pandemic. And I think it's a time for all of us to think about how being resourceful is something we can use to not just cope and get by, but to even maybe thrive during these circumstances. Yeah, I think as I was rereading it in preparation for the interview, I really thought to myself, we need this now, and boy, do our kids need these lessons right now. Yeah, I've got I've got two daughters at home, uh, eight and thirteen now, and you know they've been home since since March, and you you run out of things uh, to do after a while, and it really challenge challenges us as parents and uh, them as children to think about uh, how they're going to go about their days and their lives and dealing with so many of the challenges that we have right now, uh, uncertainty, you know, when this is going to end, you know, what's going on with the pandemic, uh, relationships. I mean, they haven't had, uh, you know, real, uh, play dates and connecting with their friends in, in months. Uh, and then of course, as, as parents, we're also uh, trying to work. And, uh, sometimes that's hard when we're also, uh, uh, camp counselor, uh, homeschool teacher, entertainer extraordinaire. And it really provokes having to change our mindset into thinking about, well, h- how can we actually turn this into some teachable moments and opportunities and deal with trying to do many different things at, at a time? And I know that sounds uh, a bit intimidating, but I, I do think there are some simple things we can do to change our mindset that uh, can actually turn these circumstances, none of you know which we we wish that we're in, but into uh, an experience where we can build connection, bond with our children a little more, and uh, teach them something. Mm, I love that. So, stretch is basically I categorize it, which you may disagree. So tell me, is basically in my heart and mind a book about resourcefulness and scrappiness. Tell me about the path that led you to stretch. Tell me about your life and how you ended up writing this book. So we've got to go back a couple of decades and I had just graduated college and I was working for a strategy consulting firm in Washington, DC. And I got a phone call pretty much out of the blue from a recruiter. This is during the internet boom. And she said to me, uh, we've got a great job for you in Silicon Valley. You know, come, come leave everything in your life to come out and, and work for us. 
and uh, you know we're gonna give you a, a raise. We'll double your salary. We'll give you a million dollar budget to manage. Uh, we're gonna give you uh, a team to manage. And I was like a year out of school, and I was like, okay, this sounds this sounds amazing. <laughs> of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up for this. I'd never been to uh, the Bay Area, so I went out there, and uh, they told me about all these wonderful things they were gonna do and how we were gonna change the world, and everyone was gonna get uh, super rich. And I signed up, and three weeks later, I moved my whole life out there, and. For the first few months, it was, I mean, it was exhilarating in many respects because it was almost like the money would not stop flowing. Uh, venture capitalists were throwing tens and tens of millions of dollars at my company and, and so many others. And, you know, there was a really simple but uh, kind of eerie formula for what success was out there. It was people give you money, you spend that money as fast as you can, and magically they'll give you more money and everything becomes worth more. Uh, on paper, at least, of course, until things came crashing during the uh, the Nasdaq um, stock started started crashing and the tech boom started uh, eroding, and our company was really left for exposed at its rawest form, which was it really was a farce. We really were only good at at raising money and spending money. What we were doing is uh, what I call chasing. And what I was doing was called chasing, which was thinking that the more we had was the token to success in life, the token to uh, having having a good life, being a successful in your career, having a successful organization. But that whole model is based off of resources constantly flowing in. And it seemed like the good times would never end, but they always do. And we didn't learn how to adapt and how to actually have a system sustainable business or for me to do things that I were actually finding meaningful. And I had this real uh, inflection point as I was seeing not only my millions of dollars of stock option on paper turn into uh, uh, virtually uh, nothing, but of course, this was also around the time that September 11th happened. And I had a really good colleague uh, who was turned out to be one of the heroes of Flight 93, Jeremy Glick, uh, who was working for our company, and, and he died in, in Flight 93. And we really had this crisis of consciousness where we started asking ourselves, what are we really doing here? I mean, we're, we're spending all of this money. We're accomplishing very little. We're not delighting customers. Uh, we're certainly not delighting our investors anymore. Uh, what are we really doing here? And it was it was at that moment that I realized that I needed to go back to graduate school and just figure out what the hell was I doing the last few years and why? And that's that was the start of my research uh, as the basis of Stretch. Oh, God, the story is so compelling. And I got to tell you, you used the word eerie. It felt eerie when you were telling it because we're seeing some of that more and more again today. Yeah. I mean, we, we see a lot of a lot of chasing out there. And uh, I mean, there's some uh, tell, telltale signs in how people are thinking about their their consumption. Uh, obviously, the economy is, is distressed right now, but it, it seems to be bifurcated right now where we've got a lot of haves and a lot of have-nots. And the haves, I think, chasing is still very much alive. It might look in different forms, but I think uh, kind of just the, the blind consumerism is really uh, tainting people in terms of what their most important priorities are when there's so much destruction and despair just around the corner. And so I'm hoping that uh, the pandemic really gives us an opportunity to rethink what our priorities and, and what our goals are and to realize that life is so precious and to ask, are we really spending our time in the way that we want to be spending our time? Or are we giving into these chasing mentalities where we're focused on comparing ourselves to others and thinking we just need to one up each other? And you know, if we can't do it in person because of the pandemic, it's it's on Instagram and boasting about you know what what the latest thing we've done on on Instagram. But are we really spending time and in looking inward? Now we have the time to to look inward and to think. You know, what is it that would make the type of meaningful and joyful life that I want? And am I spending my time that way? And I think if most people, you know, or I'd say a lot of people, if they had that honest reflection and they held up a mirror and they looked at themselves, I'm not sure they would say that they are doing that. Tell me about, before we get into the book, and I want you to define the term stretching and chasing, because um, it's it's the central to, to the book. Tell me about how graduate school post the dot-com bubble led you to becoming this esteemed endowed professor at Rice University. So tell me, where did you go to graduate school when you decided to do some reflection and study? 
So I was at the University of Michigan. I was in an organizational psychology program, and my background was actually in philosophy. So I was the, the one person in the entire program who had never taken a psych class before. So I definitely felt like a, like an outsider and not have a lot of influence, too, on, on stretch because kind of doing things differently is a big part of, of stretching. So I was kind of, you know, the person kind of left out who had never even taken a psych 101 class, but I had a different way of thinking from my philosophy studies. And was really starting to just answer and try and ask questions uh, that I've been wrestling with as the dot-com industry was beginning to crater, which is, you know, why, why on one hand uh, can people uh, be so successful and so satisfied uh, with so little, yet uh, the experience I just went through, people had so much abundance, yet they were, they were miserable and their organizations weren't doing much better. And it seemed like a, a big paradox about uh, the amount of resources. It didn't really seem to be the most important criterion in terms of what was driving either success or happiness. But that didn't make any sense because, of course, you know, the more you have, the more you should be able to do. And that means you're going to feel better and be able to accomplish your goals. But it, it turned out that wasn't the case. Define stretching and chasing for me, which is at the heart of the book. Yeah. So stretching is is really about being resourceful. It's about doing more with what you already have. It's focusing on not what other people have, not what you think you should need, not what you hope to have tomorrow, but what you have right now in front of you. And how can you be more creative, more productive with what you already have? And that's hard to do sometimes because of chasing, because chasing is this cultural belief that the more we have, the more we can do. We want to solve problems. We just need more time or we need more money or we need more experience. And what that really does for us, it just makes us wait. I mean, how many times have you said to yourself, you know, if I have more time or if I have more money or if I just had more experience or more talent, this is what I can do. But that's just the delay towards the goals that we really care about. It's almost like an excuse to do the hard work of what we actually need to do. It's funny because I I have this question for you. Um, let me tell the story. They'll ask the question. So when we read this, we were really blown away, and we did exactly what you said not to do in the book, which was you know run around our company saying, "Oh, he's he's a stretcher. He's a stretcher. She's a chaser. She's a you know he's a stretcher. She, they're, they're a stretcher. Uh, they they are you know." And I realized very quickly one the compulsion to take new information that seems really helpful and immediately turn it into binaries and diagnostic tools and labels, um, which didn't work because one of the things I realized in myself after reading this is that at my when I'm at my best, and by best I mean most confident and grounded, I am, I think I'm a stretcher par excellence. When I am uncertain, vulnerable, and afraid, I am, you You will not meet a bigger chaser than me. I, I am like, you know, when I sit down to write a book, if I feel like the, the data makes sense to me and I'm ready to explain what I'm learning, it, I just go and it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, I just sit down. If I feel insecure or doubtful, I have to buy a new desk. I have to repaint my study. I have to get all new office supplies. Like, do we all have chaser and stretching inside of us? Yeah, I think we do. They're not they're not pure types and in fact uh, maybe we should talk about being stretchy or being chasey because there are times when uh everyone does both, right? And I'm I'm certainly not immune to that to that either, but being aware of the vocabulary allows us to hold ourselves accountable and to say, "Hey, wait a minute." I'm being chasey here. Is this, is this really what I what I intend to do? And you know, I do think that pathologizing people and, and sticking labels on them isn't helpful either because we're all in this to improve ourselves. And once we label ourselves, it becomes hard to you know, have that reflection, that self-reflection to be able to grow and to do better. So uh, we're all going to have lapses and we're going to be chasey at times. Uh, but the other side is we all have the potential and the capability to be stretchy. And in fact, we're, we're born naturally uh, to be stretchy. And I mean, I think the studies on childhood and resourcefulness really show that. It's our, our institutions, it's our, our schools, our work institutions, and our culture that really begin to stamp out the stretchiness in us by teaching us that there is 
the way to do things, to teach us there are ways of using resources in certain ways and to kind of think within the box and not you know, out, out of the box. So I think uh, our goal is uh, to try and you know, navigate these institutions and hopefully eventually change them in ways that uh, promote stretching behavior and don't don't spoil the the natural gift that we're at. And I mean, there's a really easy way if you if you've got young children around, uh, you can do what I call the frying pan test, which is you know give a give a young child a frying pan and it's a musical instrument, it's a step stool, it's a bathtub for action figures or dolls on a bad day, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, you know, maybe it's a weapon to to knock a sibling <laughs> get really frustrated. Uh, you give to us and uh you know we can uh you know cook in it and make uh you know make a, a scramble or something in it and that's that's the best we can do because we've been acculturated to use things in particular ways and what that does for us is it takes away the untapped potential of all of the things around us and we, we miss out on that god that's so good i mean i could just stop here and be like i've learned the frying pan okay I want to read this quote from Jim Collins. So Jim Collins, for those of you unfamiliar with his work, is the author of From Good to Great and Great by Choice. And I I would I think it's fair to say that would you agree that Good to Great is a business classic, Scott? Yeah, there are very few books. I mean, if you if you said classic, you know, he would definitely be in the, the top ten all time list, I would say. Yes. And so if not top five. If not the top five. So this is this is what he wrote about stretch. I always appreciate a book that challenges me forces me to think, and creates constructive discomfort. And I especially value such a book when its key conclusions have a base of research. Dr. Sun and Shine has accomplished all this with stretch, and I am thankful for the chance to grow from reading his work. So not only yet, like, yay for you, like, that's the top, so that's the top endorsement on the back of the book, but this term, constructive discomfort. Um, I, let me tell you the most, the hardest personal thing for me reading this book was, you know, I've had a fair amount of success in my career and I would attribute a lot of that success to my scrappiness and my stretchiness. I mean, I sold books out of the back of my car. I was just, all I needed at that point was like the money changer belt. When I had t-shirts that, you know, we mailed them from my house. Um, like we we did, I self-published my first book because no one was interested in a book on shame. And I had to borrow the money from my parents because I was in graduate school. Steve was in medical school and we were broke. You know, I I get stretchiness. I understand the power of stretchiness. But as success has come, I find myself being less and less stretchy. I find myself becoming more chasey, in some ways more fearful. And there's something that I want to pause on, and I'm not going to be able to articulate this in a way, so maybe you can unlock it for us. My success in some weird way has taught me how to chase. Before my success, my intuition was to stretch. Is that possible? Yeah, it's not only possible, it's very common because what happens is people are resourceful by circumstances. So, you know, you're finding yourself without a lot of resources, without a publisher, trying to get your book and your ideas out there. And you've got to be scrappy because you have no other way of doing it. So mm. in, in that case, uh, being stretchy is, is pretty natural. The more challenging circumstance is how we can be stretchy when it's a choice. And what we need to realize is that stretching is not something just when our backs are against the wall, though certainly that's that's really helpful and you uh, were able to uh, get your book off to such great success under such constrained circumstances. But being stretchy is something that's also helpful when we're uh, when we're already successful, because it allows us to continue to create and innovate, getting the most out of what we already have. It's it's not about just doing more with less. It's about doing more with what we already have. There's uh, folks in the book that I I profile that are you know millionaires and billionaires and have stuck with this lifestyle because they realize that this is a mindset that has brought them success and it's going to continue to bring them success because they're going to 
focus on what it is they're trying to accomplish. Once we get chasey, we start thinking about what we have to do because it's expected uh, of conventions. Um, we're worrying about what other people would be doing in these circumstances, and we're getting away uh, from our own goals. And you see this a lot with organizations. They start up as the scrappy, resourceful business, and then they move into the nicer office building, and it begins to change the culture of the company because well, look, now we're no longer the garage startup and we've got all these nice things. So maybe I'm going to not have that sense of urgency, not think as creatively before because I'm surrounded by this, by this abundance. And that's why as we achieve success, we need to be more mindful of you know, how we're, how we're you know, being stretchy versus, versus being chasey. And uh, there are some simple exercises, simply reflecting about uh, a time when we had to stretch uh, when we had a lot of constraints. So when you're working on uh, a project, thinking about that first book and what it was like is enough to trigger that mindset to keep you being stretchy. The research finds that just writing a paragraph can get you back into that mindset. So just thinking about, ah, oh, do you remember that time when no one knew who I was and I couldn't even get my uh, book in a bookstore? I mean, it was the, the car was the bookstore. How was I feeling and what was I doing? And just writing about that is enough to put you in that mindset to carry that over, to continue that stretchiness, even when you find yourself in very different circumstances today. Okay. So one of the things I love about your work is you may not have taken a psychology class when you arrived at Michigan, but man, you have turned into one hell of a social scientist. Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting because if you think about my my career, it's been very non-conventional, and I have a chapter in Stretch about outsiders and the power of how outsiders solve problems. So when we're facing some of our biggest problems, like grand challenges, like what we're facing during the, the pandemic today, uh, people who approach problems from very different perspectives, diverse perspectives, have so much to offer because all the so-called experts have been using their tools in one certain way and they're missing kind of the, the big, uh, you know, the, the new way of doing things. And that's where the outsider uh, really, really comes along. Uh, one of my favorite study uh, stories in the book is uh, from a guy by the name of Gavin Potter, who's in the UK. And uh, he was uh, in this competition with Netflix to try and improve their their algorithm when they were trying to get people to to watch more more movies. And he was going up against all of these teams, you know, uh, teams of uh, mathematicians and computer scientists at MIT and Stanford and Oxford and all these places. And he was literally working in his, his flat in London with a, a computer he had to turn off at night because the fan was waking up his wife, his <laughs> teenage daughter was, yeah, seriously, his teenage daughter was his, his math consultant uh, to help him with the calculus. And all these teams are trying to figure out, you know, how to solve this as a math problem. And he realized it's actually a social science problem because so much of the ratings are based off of what you watched before because you become anchored and biased by how you rated a previous movie. So while everyone's trying to solve the hard math problem, uh, what really helped unlock uh, this Netflix prize that awarded over a million dollars to uh, to helping improve the algorithm uh, was really just about understanding human nature that says, if we just watch the movie that we like, it's going to impact the, the next movie that we rate. And no one else was figure that out because they were they were busy doing fancy math and he was doing something very different. Yeah, it's it's the outsider perspective. So so I want to see there's a part in the book is that part of the 166 grand challenges study? Can you tell us a little bit more about that study? Yeah, so this is this is a study looking at these grand challenges, you know, think about eradicating a disease like we're, we're facing right now and how to get vaccines fast to cleaning up the Exxon Valdez oil spill. These are, these are our, our biggest challenges we're facing. And in this study that looked at 166 of these grand challenges, it was across like 10 or 12 different countries, uh, different uh, research and development labs in, in companies. And it was a really simple question the researchers were asking. They were asking, to what extent does a scientist background in an area of the challenge impact how well they can solve that challenge? So in other words, how well can the biologist solve the biology problem. And you probably would say to me like, well, Scott, why would, why would they even study that? It seems yeah. obvious. Like the biologist, of course, is going to get all the biology grand challenges and, and so on. And you know what's so telling is not only did the uh, study not show that uh, positive correlation, uh, it actually showed a negative correlation. So the biologist actually uh, solved the chemistry problems better than the chemists. And the chemists 
solve the biology problems better than the biologist. It was the exact opposite of what we think, which is just completely remarkable because we think uh, expertise is really what matters and that someone who doesn't come to the table with the most knowledge out there has very little to offer. But in fact, these are the hidden gems that help us solve our problems uh, that we need to be empowering more. I mean, to me, this is, you know, people ask a lot, people ask me pretty often, to be honest with you, like, how is it that you make connections between things that are seemingly unconnectable, especially around behavior, emotion, and thought? And, you know, for many years, I thought, well, it's because, you know, I'm a grounded theory researcher and I study people and that's my expertise. But really, after reading Stretch, what I realized was I've been an outsider my whole life. And my social well-being and my emotional well-being was completely dependent on being able to understand people and how what they experienced and were feeling drove how they showed up and behaved. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you because that's, that's what I feel. And it's sometimes a hard space to occupy, of course, because you never feel like you fit in a specific box. Uh, and it's, I remember even going on the, the job market the first time as a faculty member and, you know, people are always, well, what, what box are, are you in? And I'm like, well, I, I span multiple, multiple boxes. I don't, I don't want to put myself in a box. And it's, uh, when we're stretchy, we're becoming comfortable with realizing that it's okay not to fit into that single box. And we can be almost like multilingual. And it's about making connections between different parts of problems that we're solving. That's a really powerful uh, superpower to have because it allows us to look at things in ways that other people have overlooked. I want to ask you a question that, again, I don't know if I can frame it up well, so you may even have to help me ask the question. See if you can follow me. When I think about what's happening right now around the racial reckoning and this fight for racial justice, that is long overdue, that I'm super committed to. I know you're committed to it because I, I know you outside of this. You know, when I look at the issues that we're facing with police brutality, anti-Semitism, and nationalism, I often wonder if the moral imagination that it's going to take to fix it and to create more justice, environmental justice, social justice in the world is going to come from stretchy outsiders. I think so, because what we've seen is the status quo is clearly not working. And the so-called experts have, have, not, have not figured out a way. And we're seeing in really dramatic and unfortunate ways, just a lot of our social institutions beginning to crumble under all of this anxiety and stress and despair and unfairness of what's happening out there. And it's almost like we're, we're slogging away, just trying to, to get by and not really touching the root of the problem, almost because, uh, you know, people might be afraid to, to touch it. And it's not, it's not gonna, it's not just gonna disappear uh, by itself. And we do need solutions that help bring people back together and start to treat everyone with the worth and dignity that they deserve. And this reminds me of a study by Gordon Alport from the 1960s. And what he was studying during that was, uh, again, groups that were just not getting along and trying to put them in the in the same room. And he realized it doesn't actually take a, a strong intervention to bring people together. It's simply just about spending time together. And right now, what we're struggling with are just these narratives where we've got, you know, at least two very different camps, uh, you know, you know, and, and telling stories in their in their heads that are, are just uh, completely annihilating each other. And we need to we need to uh, bring bring those stories together and help realize that we have so much more in common that bonds us together as humans uh, than we do apart, and that uh, our country has a really uh, sad history of how it's treated uh, certain groups of, of people. And I think we need to uh, really get out there and uh, help bring more voice to to, to Black uh, Americans and other underrepresented minorities, and just just stop ignoring that. 
and, and thinking this problem is going to, to go away. So uh, having outsiders come in there and think about ways of bringing groups together in ways that haven't happened before, I think is really helpful. Um, but something needs to start soon because these stories become self-perpetuating over time. And unless we, unless we find a way of re-narrating those stories sooner, they're just going to become further and further ingrained, and it's going to be that much more difficult to, to dig out from under them. Is there a relationship when you talk, when we talk about problem solving, whether it's again the Exxon Valdez or issues of racial injustice or the pandemic? Is there research around the relationship between creativity and imagination and stretchiness? Or do the most creative and great ideas come from folks who chase and set up the biggest labs and the you know, what do we know? What do you know? Yeah, so the the, the creativity is is a function of the of the stretchy the stretchy mindset, uh, and so that can come from just naturally being resource constrained, like when you were trying to launch your your first book, or it can come from just getting into the stretching mindset through just thinking about a time when you when you were constrained. And what the science teaches us is that when we face when we face constraints, we have almost permission. We give ourselves this this kind of funny permission to use our resources in different ways. So when we have abundance around us, we can only see a chair as a chair because we have kind of the archetype of, well, a chair is something that we sit in. Uh, but what's interesting is that when the mind is in this uh, more scarcity, this, this stretchy type mindset, we begin to see the chair as different things, whether it be a, a stool or a back scratcher or whatever else we might come up with it. So uh, we can unlock creativity. And we tend to think that creativity is something that you know, people are born with. And uh, you know, I'm not an artist, so I'm not really creative. Uh, but there's another type of creativity. It's called little c creativity. And this is the engine that allows us to solve problems, whether it be around the pandemic or racial justice uh, or you know, day-to-day problems in our, our work life. It's, it's this little c creativity that we get this, this license, this permission slip to unlock once we uh, embrace this stretchy mindset. So the research clearly shows uh, constraints make us more creative. And I think that's why they have the cliche that necessity is the mother of invention. Tell me what word you're using in front of creativity. What kind of creativity is this? Uh, little c creativity. So just the, the lowercase c as a- Oh, little c. Yeah, as opposed to just thinking like big creativity, like I'm going to go compose a work of music or make beautiful art. This is the little c creativity is the type of creativity that allows us to solve problems. And that is a function of our stretchy mindset. Okay. <laughs> I need you I need you to have my back on something really big. Are you ready? I don't want you to ever lie about the data, but I need you to have my back on this. All right, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> this drives people crazy and it's probably kind of a shitty thing for my family and my colleagues, but why do I write so much better? under massive time constraint, so much so that I think I create it in order to write. Okay. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who does this. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for validating me. I know that wasn't your intention. It was supposed to go the other way around, but I'm I'm the same way. It's, 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 it's deadlines uh, create urgency and they activate in us making connections between things that we have a hard time seeing when we have abundance, we have what scientists call slack resources. So it could be like, well, I don't need to finish this paragraph or make this connection because I have another three weeks until this deadline is up. And so what happens is we just squander those three weeks until it's midnight before it's due. And then miraculously, the idea comes to us. So that's that's the first thing going on. Um, But the, the second thing I should point out is so much of our thought process is subconscious. So when we're not working, you know, we're going for a walk, you know, I love, I love to, I love to walk. I know you love to walk uh, too. Uh, we are constantly thinking about our problems, even if they're not top of mind. And so we're beginning to develop ideas in our minds that when that deadline hits, we're not starting from scratch. Like the mind has already been working on some things, even without us realizing it. And we're just, we're just activating it during that deadline. Okay. So I got to tell you a funny story. So. I'm getting ready to start my sixth or seventh book. And when the kids were little and I was writing my first book, Steve was like, okay, I understand you have to write this weekend. Um, I'm going to take the kids to San Antonio and go visit my mom. And I said, great. And so when he came home, 
He said, did you get a lot written? You know, um, was it productive? And I said, I could, I was going to lie, but then like, we have this rule where we don't lie. So I was like, "Mm, well, he goes, did you write, did you not write a lot? I said, well, he goes, did you write anything? And I said, no, I didn't write a word. And he was gone for a three-day weekend. And he said, well, what did you do? And I said, I watched like 46 episodes of Law and Order. And we had a fight. Like we had a fight. Um, not like a fist fight, obviously, but we we had a, a really uncomfortable argument. And probably that was, you know, he was home on a Monday afternoon because it was a three-day weekend. And then on Thursday, I said, hey, I've got my first draft ready. And he's like, when did you write that? And I said, oh, like between breaks at work and on lunch. And and now he still can take the kids away when I'm writing. And he's like, okay, like we got to go. Your mom's going to watch Law and Order. And she's going to do a lot of walking. And she's going to reorganize stuff and clean up. But I need to do something that rests my brain. And, you know, Law and Order is so formulaic and easy. Because I think what you're saying is true. All my creative stuff bubbles up at the underneath that or something. Is that weird? True? No, it's it's not weird at all. Because again, so so much so much of of um, of this mindset is trying to free ourselves from uh, you know kind of what's happening out in the world. And when we are walking or watching Law and Order and doing something that doesn't require a lot of thought our mind actually becomes looser because it's not focused on the task right in front of us. So, you know, dueling or something in school, I know teachers, you know, would, would give uh, students a lot of, a lot of problem, uh, problems with that, but it actually uh, people can are, are still processing information and allows them to be more creative in their problem solving when they're doing something. So the trick here is to do something that requires a low amount of thought. Uh, and then that's when the brain starts kind of thinking about these things uh, in the background. So doing uh, uh, doodling, walking, watching, watching TV could work. Um, and that tends to be more more creative than if you were doing nothing. If you just try and think about the problem, you begin to tighten up how you uh, think about your resources, whether it be ideas or knowledge structures. So you're not you're not as creative. So it's doing a, a low amount of thing that kind of takes your mind off the problem, actually allows your brain to work on the problem without uh, the stress or the pressure. So, uh, you know, you go back to that law and order and uh, you can tell Steve that you are busy working while you're watching TV. <laughs> and let me tell you, I, I didn't know about the term dueling, but... I must be wired for that hardcore because the other thing is when I get stuck in writing, I play ping pong for hours. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's another, that's another good one. Um, the key that the one caveat here is not to be doing two things that require a lot of thinking at the same time. So like multitasking is like, is absolutely terrible for this, but ping pong, when you've got a, a big problem you're thinking about, that's awesome. So, okay, so help us draw the line. So there, we're not, because I'm not, I'm not thinking about my ping pong game when I'm playing ping pong. I'm thinking about other things and just kind of, I'm just going through the motions of ping pong. So there's a difference between dueling and multitasking. Right. When you're multitasking, which sign shows on that is it's, I mean, we don't actually multitask. What we do is we switch between different tasks just very, very rapidly. And we just, we don't see that. So it seems like we're multitasking. But if you're trying to, you know, write a book, at the same time, when you're typing while you're trying to do a math problem in your head, you know that's never going to work, and that's that's because you know the, the brain just doesn't doesn't work that way. So doing doing something that requires very little thought process, a ping pong, walking, you know, watching kind of mindless TV, that allows the brain to reserve its power for the problem that you're you're trying to to solve uh, without needing a lot of uh, computational power to do this this other activity. But once those two activities become things that require a lot of concentration and effort, you know, all bets are off. And multitaskers, actually, the science says, are about 40% less productive. So uh, we don't want to go down that route. That's bad news for me, y'all. Okay. I want to get into a topic that is, you know, is bad all the time, but seems really weird right now during the pandemic, which is comparison. Um, like, you know, I, I have 55 planned activities for my kids. I've developed a six pack for my new exercise regime and I'm making sourdough bread and I've redesigned my house, you know, 
Tell me about the Olympic medal study and your takeaway in terms of stretching and chasing around that study. This, this study freaks me out like big time. So this is a study comparing uh, medalists at the, at the Olympics. And uh, what the research was looking at was how are people happy and you know what are they feeling after after the olympics and you would think that there would be a very natural hierarchy to this obviously you win the gold medal you're going to be the happiest and then the silver medalist because they came in second and second is awesome still and then the bronze medalists and then you know after that you know the people who didn't medal might actually be a little uh, upset because they didn't they didn't even get a medal but actually what the what the research shows is the least satisfied people among the gold, the silver, the bronze, and even the non-medalists are the silver medalists, which is crazy because- Oh my God, it's crazy. They came in second in this you know, in Olympic competition. And the question is why? <laughs> and it really goes to, to comparisons and what your reference group is. The silver medalists aren't appreciating and grateful for coming in second place in this world-class competition. They're thinking about how they just missed the gold medal and how close they were to that gold medal. And that changes their perspective inordinately. And they, they're, they're less happy. And you can look at footage of, uh, of Olympic medalists and you, you see that the silver medalists tend to be the least happy of the group. Um, the bronze medalists who objectively perform worse than the silver medalists are much happier than the silver medalists because their perspective is also very different. They're just grateful they got a medal. And I think that teaches us an important level, especially in the pandemic, about who our comparison groups are, because you know, social comparisons are, are largely human nature because it's a form of making meaning. It's a way of taking stock of, of how we're doing. And it's sometimes hard to do that without looking across the world. And I think in the pandemic, uh, through social media, uh, these problems uh, our, our reference groups are expanded because we're not only just looking at our neighbors, which also is problematic in, in, in some respects, and we can, we can talk about that, but we're looking across largely the world right now and seeing all of these things being done. And it's like, my goodness, I'm like trying to get my work done. And now you want me to run this school and we've got eight subjects with my kids. And by the way, we're going to pick up three different hobbies during the time and start the remodeling job. It's like, it's overwhelming just, just thinking about it. And uh, I think we need to start dropping those comparisons because they're they're unhealthy for ourselves and they don't reflect the goals that we want. Uh, with, with stretchy, when we're being stretchy, we're thinking inward about our own goals, not what our neighbors are doing, not what our neighbor's kids are doing. And um, if I can just uh, detour just a second to uh, this, this study in the book about, about grass, which I think is oh god emblematic of the... <laughs> Because right there's the cliche that says the grass is always, uh, you know, greener, and and this 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 idea that uh, you know people spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to get their grass pristine looking because they want to outdo their neighbors. The lusher the grass that you have, the more successful you are, the better life that you live. This is kind of all uh, weathered in kind of like our, our ideas of you know kind of the American dream and and home ownership. Uh, but what's <laughs> so interesting about the physics of how how grass works is when you are literally peering over your fence, looking at your neighbor's grass, their grass, because of the angle you're looking at it, looks greener, even if it is actually the same lushness as your own grass. And that's just crazy. And I mean, it really teaches us perspective because when we're looking over at other people, uh, sometimes their lives look remarkably amazing. And we know like, you know, people disproportionately share only good news on, on social media. You know, people talk about their promotions on LinkedIn. They don't talk about when they got fired uh, and, and so on. So we have a very jaded view of what other people are doing and uh, how they're living. And if we start comparing ourselves to them, uh, we're just making comparisons that we're just destined to to fail. So we need to we need to stop these social comparisons and realize, look, no matter even if they're green, their grass looks greener. Our grass is really probably just as green, if not more. You're speaking right to me. Yeah, it, it, and it's so funny that the grass is actually greener from the other side. <laughs> I mean, is that perfect or what? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Okay, I want to talk about our kids. I want to talk about parenting. Um, this book really 
woke me up in some ways. Um, it's also helped me learn how to talk. So both of my kids have some weird math ability where they can answer a very complex problem, like the the problem of the day or the problem of the week on the board, but they don't get good grades because they don't show their work in the way that they've been taught. Like they get to the answer. In fact, there's been a, a cheating accusation one way. Like there's no way you could have gotten this answer without these exact steps. And then really we had to walk the teacher through the steps and say, this is this is how it came to be. How has this research changed how you parent your daughters differently? What have we learned about coming at problems differently, about resources? Help us. Yeah, so I think I think uh, par- parenting is 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 always always challenging, and I certainly started rethinking about my own. I've got uh, thirteen and, and eight year old daughters about thinking about what it would be like to raise stretchers because you know, there's things we can control in life and things we can't control in life. And sometimes, you know, just the, the ups and downs of, of life, we, we can't control the amount of resources we have. So for me, it's really important to instill resourcefulness. So I know as a parent, like my first instinct is you want to, you want to be good to your kids and you feel like they ask for something, you want to give it to them right away. They want a new toy. You want to, you want to, you want to go out and, and buy it for them, especially if you can, can afford it. Um, and what I've been trying to do is really, instill in them that, look, you've got lots of stuff already around you. How, how might you put these things to different use? So you can combine uh, different types of toys together, and then you've created an entire new experience. So that was kind of like the, the younger the younger phase of, of, of teaching them to kind of get creative with it. And what they've realized is there's actually a lot of pleasure you get into being creative and using things in, in different ways. And so I think they've, they, they got that lesson. So that one, that one was, was a little easier. Maybe, maybe younger kids are easier, but you know, as my kids have gotten older, I think we've come across the education system that you've seen uh, with your kids an education system, which uh, teaches conformity, which teaches people and, and children to think in very specific ways. And what I'm trying to encourage them to do is to, is to recognize that, uh, you know, sometimes look, you know, you've got to learn to play by the rules of the game and there's just a pragmatic thing. So I'm not going to tell you to tell your kids or, or I'm not going to tell my kids that says, you know, just blow it off when kind of the, the teacher wants things. There are just people who are going to demand that certain things go in a box. And that's a useful skill to have. But I don't want that to take away from the gift that you have and the gift that I think every child has, which is your unique stamp on the world, the way that you approach problems, the way that you look at problems. So I'm trying to empower them to think about, you know, even though you might have different experience or you might not, you know, take as many, uh, you know, classes in this area as someone else, you still have something to give. And it's that kind of outsider perspective that can help make a contribution. Don't just check out because you feel like someone around you has more. That's actually the time to check in because it it allows you to give a different type of gift. It's really interesting when I think about teaching, stretching, and chasing, and I think about the impact of also trying to model that with our kids, right? Like also trying to, um, I just, we're re-releasing the gifts of imperfection. Um, it's the 10th anniversary this year. Um, and I, for, as the 10th, as part of the 10th anniversary, I read the book because the first audio of the book was not read by me. And so our community was like, please read the book. So I read the book. And when I was reading it, I was reminded of, this was again, I wrote it 10 years ago, where Steve and I put a joy list together. And we wrote down all the things that brought us joy. And we actually started the exercise to make sure our acquire and acquisition list was still right. All the things we wanted to buy, all the things we wanted to earn and get. And so we wrote down this joy list and it was so painful because everything that brings us joy as a family still today has nothing to do with acquisitions and accomplishments and acquirement. It was like, 
we cook we cook together at least four times a week. We have family dinners. We go hiking. We swim together. We, you know, all these things that really bring us joy. Uh, and then of course, you know, let's get Maslow here. We've got financially all of our basic needs met. So this is not saying who needs money um, cooked together. I'm saying like we can, we have the basic needs met. But when I compared the joy list with kind of our dream list about, you know, buying this or acquiring this, it was so telling about time as the resource that is just the most precious and unrenewable, right? Is that a part of stretching and chasing? Yeah, no, it, it is because uh, time is really one of the hardest resources to to renew. It's, it's fixed. And uh, we know from the, the research that uh, how we spend our time and experiences we have matter so much more for life satisfaction than buying the latest fashion item or electronic gadget. Um, so how we choose to spend our time is going to make all the world of difference. Now, when we're stretching, we, we, we need to be more uh, mindful of how to get the most out of our time. And this is where I've, you know, when I think about uh, everything from when my kids were really young to what they are now is we try and create these collective experiences that allow us to do, uh, you know, multiple things at, at once uh, to kind of save time. So, for example, you know, I, I, I love to walk. So I would, you know, I would spend time walking my daughters in strollers when they were young. And that was a way of spending time with them and chatting with them while still being able to, to walk. Uh, you know, cooking is something we've been doing a lot together as a as a family as well. So you know, we're you know we're kind of checking off multiple things at once and having that quality time, um, and that's a way of ex- expanding what we have. But another big part of it is just not wasting time. I mean, we waste a lot of time chasing after the things that we think we should want and losing touch with the things that really bring us meaning and joy. And I think for a lot of people, no matter their circumstances, if they just cut out those activities and things that they're they're doing that really aren't bringing them any type of meaning or, or pleasure, like real, if they like held up a mirror and said, am I really doing this because I enjoy it? Or am I doing this because I think I should be doing it? Uh, I think people would find that they actually have a lot more time than they realize. It reminds me a little bit of my own research around comfort, true comfort versus numbing. If you're, you know, if you want to sit down and take true comfort in watching two hours or three hours of law and order, go for it. But if you're just numbing and it's not filling you back up at all, just scrolling through or just, you know, um, it's really thoughtful. I have to say that I'm going to work on, I'm going to continue to work on the Chasey in me. Um, Oh my God, if I won the silver medal, I'd be pissed off. That is not a good part of my personality. I'd be like, Oh no, Mm-mm. I, I would be really mad if I won the bronze. I would be thrilled. I'm just happy to be here and medal and like wow. But that's not a good part of me, Scott. Look, I, it, it's hard. It's not easy for you. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for anyone. But again, just just calling ourselves out on it and holding us accountable for it is such an important step. Okay, you ready for our rapid fire questions? Okay. All right. Fill in the blank. Vulnerability is. Uh, hard, but definitely doable. You're called to be really brave, but the fear is real. You can feel it in the back of your throat. What's the very first thing you do? Just jump in and start acting. What is something that people often get wrong about you? That I'm always super serious. I actually have a pretty playful side to me. I can vouch for that, actually. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, they just can't see your Vita first. If they see your CV first, it's gonna you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to be really you're gonna have to come up with some knock knock jokes or something. Um, okay, the last TV show that you binged and loved, uh, Suits. Favorite one of your favorite movies, uh, Back to the Future. Oh my god! Of course, <laughs> I finally introduced my kids to it uh, a few months ago too, and they loved it. <laughs> I got to say, some of the movies that we loved growing up did not age well. So that one is one we've watched with our kids, too. It's a good one. Okay. Um, A concert that you'll never forget. Uh, Counting Crows. Mm, Good one. Favorite meal? Anything involving dessert, I would say. (laughs) Favorite dessert? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, chocolate babka. Chocolate babka? Babka, yes. Babka. uh, Yeah. It's like a kind of a, a chocolate infused uh, 
a coffee cake with lots of layers of chocolate, almost like a combination between a croissant and a coffee cake <gasps> filled with chocolate. We're going to have oh to get you one of those if you've never had one. <laughs> oh my God. You know where they used to sell those that are, Scott and I live close to each other. They used to sell those at Three Brothers Bakery, which is not yeah. here anymore, but yes. Oh my God. That's very, so you're a chocolate lover. That's chocolatey. Yes, I do love chocolate. Okay. What's on your nightstand? Uh, well, right now we're in the middle of moving, so I got to flip cardboard boxes our nightstand uh, until, our, <laughs> until our new one comes in. But uh, uh, usually it's sparkling water and something my kids made me. Oh my God, but that's very stretchy of you to use the box that way. I like it. Yeah, we donated our real nightstands a few weeks ago, so uh, that's what we got. That's awesome. A snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life right now that gives you joy. Uh, so right right before this pandemic started, my older daughter had her bat mitzvah. We had our entire family together uh, here in Houston. And you know, unfortunately, I just don't know when we're going to get back together all, all in the same room. So I'm, I'm really cherishing that moment. Mm. Tell me one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now. My health and my family's health. Amen, right? You just – that is – you know – even when I see like something on email that says, dear, so, you know, dear Brene, I hope you're well. I'm like, wow, that just has different meaning. Yeah. It's, it's no longer just something tried and banal. Like it, even when you say it to people too, like you've really got to, you've really got to mean it because it's just what's, what's happening right now is, is pretty remarkable. Okay. We asked you for five songs that you can't live without. So you've got Don't Stop Me Now by Queen, Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. Stick It to the Man, which is from the Broadway musical School of Rock, written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Glenn Slater. Oh. Only You by The Platters. Now, is that the only you, that song? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that song. Um, and then you've got one of my favorites on your list, too, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. What does this playlist say about you? So I think it says, uh, you got my playful side in there with, uh, don't stop me now. Um, I think bridge over troubled water is just, it's such a calming song and it's mm. something that, you know, with, with just everything going on in the world right now, from the pandemic to racial injustice to just uncertainty, it's something that just brings me a lot of calm right now. Um, stick it to the man, I think is just, it's kind of like that inner rebellious, uh, part mm -hmm. that I have that says, I, I don't want to be a conformist, even though I'm living in a system that, that completely rewards conformity. And there are just times when we just want to get out there and, and kind of, uh, revolt. It's also an amazing workout song too. And so I, I love doing my workouts, uh, uh, to that song. Only You was uh, first dance at uh, when Randy and I got, got married. And I think it just reflects uh, mm. just the specialness of our relationship and what she's really meant, uh, meant to me in, in our lives. Uh, and Walking on Sunshine, I mean, what a fun, happy, uplifting song. And if you just change the, uh, uh, the uh, leathers around, it's Walking on Sunshine. And it just gives me <laughs> so much more joy. So. <laughs> walking on Sunshine. <laughs> You got your own song. Oh, man. Okay. My own song is I'm going to get, so I'll take it. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Scott Walking on Sun and Shine. Um, thank you for being with us on uh, Unlocking Us. And thank you for this remarkable book. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me on. It's just a, a, a total delight. And I will uh, we'll walk soon, yes? Yeah, we'll definitely walk soon. And I'm going to uh, bring you chocolate popka. I'm like, then we'll walk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to need Wait, just for, just so that the, this unlocking us community just feels like motivated. How many steps do you get in a day? Uh, so it could be between 18 and 20,000. I mean, I am a, a serial walker. My meetings will go walking. My ideation process will go walking. So it, it's a lot, uh, but you certainly don't need to do that many to feel good uh, about yourself. But that's, that's kind of my thing I do. Yeah, it is. And we've had meetings before, walking meetings before, which are so, it's just so much better. I've got, at the end, I'm sweaty. I got no notes, but like my life has been changed. So I love it. Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. All right. Thank you too. Take care. Okay, y'all, isn't Scott walking on sun and shine just the best ever? Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I just have so much fun talking to people who are, 
you know, dedicating their careers to unlocking us. Um, did you see what I did there? But I'm Okay, so his book is called Stretch, Unlock the Power of Less and Achieve More Than You Ever Imagined. Um, you can find it wherever you buy books. It's wonderful. It's a fun team read. Um, if you're working with a team, it's a good family read, a great family discussion. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Sun and Shine, S-C-O-T-T, and then Sun and Shine is S-O-N-E-N-S-H-E-I-N. Instagram is scott.sunandshine, and his website is www.scottsunandshine.com. He's nothing but if predictable on these uh, social media and websites. Speaking of books, just some fun news in case you haven't heard or seen. The 10th anniversary edition of The Gifts of Imperfection launched today on September 8th. Um, really exciting. This is the book that launched our community. And it was so, it was so weird to kind of redo it because the, when we asked people, what do you want? They said, don't change anything. Don't change any stories. Don't change the text. Give us a new forward. Let us know what's been going on, but don't change anything. So I wrote a new forward. We didn't change anything, but we are going to do a webinar series on it. Um, we have a new hub on BreneBrown.com. You can take a free assessment called the Wholehearted Inventory, which we spent several years developing and validating. And it will let you know kind of what your strengths and opportunities for growth are based on each of the 10 guideposts. Um, we we also have beautiful graphic design downloads that you can um, get for free on the hub. So visit BreneBrown.com for all things the gifts of imperfection. And join us on the webinar series. That's going to be really fun. Barrett, I'm looking at Barrett. Am I forgetting anything? You say hi to the people. Hi to the people. <laughs> yeah, I'll have a good one. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. <laughs>